Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the July-August 2018 California Freemason Magazine. Faith of Our Fathers, written by John L. Cooper III, past Grand Master. Two founding fathers, Masonic principles guided our visionary constitution. Not all of the founding fathers of the United States of America were Freemasons, but quite a few were. And those who were members of the craft may have been able to affect a greater influence because of their Masonic philosophy. In his book, Revolutionary Brotherhood, Freemasonry and the Transformation of the American Social Order, 1730-1840, Stephen C. Bullock notes the importance of Masonic ideas in the formation of the U.S. government. The American Republic was, above all, an idea, an aspiration that if given the chance, a free populace could govern itself without falling into chaos and anarchy on one extreme or despotism on the other. Freemasonry, says Bullock, was the inspiration for the extraordinary and successful attempt to transform a monarchical colony of a distant homeland into a self-governing republic. The first American Grand Lodge was founded in 1733, so the fraternity was firmly established in the United States when the Constitution was written in 1787. Nine of its signers were Masons. Others would later seek Masonic membership. Two of these Masons were so prominent that they truly encapsulated the spirit of the American Revolution and the creation of the American Republic, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Perhaps of all the delegates, these men supremely represented the values that inspired the Revolution itself, the capacity of a political society to govern itself. According to Bullock, Mason's role in the Constitution's creation is no surprise. The political skills that propelled the colonies towards revolution and freedom were incubated in Masonic lodges in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Unlike most organizations of the day, Masonic lodges had honed the skills of self-government and had committed themselves to the principles that would prove to be indispensable in a republic. Among these were pledges to respect every member's equality, to ensure every member could present his views without interruption to treat every member fairly with the standards of due process, and to practice leadership rotation and representative government. These values were exactly those needed by a self-governing society in order to avoid falling into anarchy or despotism. The keystone of Masonic influence was the ideal of equality, regardless of birth or wealth. Bullock writes, Just as it illuminates the zones of participation and freedom that constitute liberty, Masonry also reveals crucial changes in the ideal of equality. Masonry's first century, 1717 to 1817, spans the period when equality became a central and explicit national value. The fraternity served as a focal point for this transformation from a hierarchical society of superiors and inferiors to a republican society of independent citizens. It has taken time for the American Republic to realize in full the ideal outlined here, but every generation has added to this aim. Freemasonry has served as a wellspring, a guiding hand along the way. That the U.S. is one of the oldest self-governing nations in the world is attributable to the 
commitment of our founding fathers to the principles fostered in Masonic lodges before the birth of our nation. Mason's leadership in our country's formative years was crucial to the enunciation of these principles in the Constitution itself. The influence of the nine Masonic founding fathers was profound, stretching far beyond proportion to their numbers. Though these inspiring words, as articulated in the Declaration of Independence, are not explicitly in our Masonic ritual, the ideal behind them surely is. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The following article is from the May-June 2018 California Freemason Magazine. and is also part of the Masonic Education series. It's titled Brotherhood in a Time of Conquest by John L. Cooper III, past Grandmaster. Victorian India challenged Freemasonry's ideal of tolerance. Freemasonry, as we know it, originated in the British Isles in the 18th century. From there, it quickly spread to Europe and beyond, especially to all parts of the British Empire. Given its stated commitment to universality, one could imagine that non-European men would be welcome in the lodges that were established in these newly accessed parts of the world. Sadly, that was not always the case, and India is a typical example. The first lodge chartered in India was Lodge No. 72 at Bengal in 1728. That was just 11 years after the first Grand Lodge at London's 1717 founding, and just five years after that same Grand Lodge had declared that Freemasonry would accept all men regardless of their religious affiliation. In these words, 1. Concerning God and religion, a Mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law, and if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. But though in ancient times Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is, to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denominations or persuasions they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. Unfortunately, this ideal did not easily translate to lodges across the British Empire, especially to India. Despite the fact that a few members of the Indian aristocracy became masons, most Indians were barred from Masonic membership, some of the discrimination was undoubtedly based on race and nationality as much as religion, but membership denials based upon religious differences did exist. One celebrated case involved a native of India named Manaki Kursechi, who was repeatedly rejected by English-speaking lodges in India. Even after he finally became a mason in Paris, he was unable to join a local lodge in India. In 1843, Krasetchi's plight came to the attention of Brother Burns, Provincial Grand Master of the Indian Lodges under the Grand Lodge of Scotland. He set about creating a lodge for native Indian Masons. The Star of Western India, number 343, on the register of the Grand Lodge of Scotland. From this beginning, Freemasonry gradually spread to the native Indian classes. There was, however, one more hurdle to overcome before the universality of Freemasonry could be truly realized in this new context. 
Unlike many native Indians, Kersechi was a Parsi. The Parsi were descendants of Iranian Zoroastrians who fled to India beginning in the 8th century to avoid religious persecution. Zoroastrianism was a monotheistic religion, so no questions arose regarding Kersechi's religious qualification for becoming a Mason. But what about polytheistic Hindus or Buddhists who did not ascribe to a human-divine relationship? Were they eligible to become Masons? These pivotal questions were eventually resolved by acknowledging that religion is personal to each individual Mason, and that he must decide for himself how his own religious beliefs align with the Masonic requirement of a belief in a supreme being. For example, if someone followed an outwardly polytheistic religion, but believed that a supreme being was behind the outward forms of his religion, he had satisfied the Masonic requirement. After all, Christians believed in the Holy Trinity, but acknowledged that it was an expression of the oneness of God, or a singular God expressed as three entities. Other religions had to be allowed a similar approach. This new open-mindedness led to the praise of Freemasonry's universality by the celebrated author and poet Rudyard Kipling. Kipling was born in India in 1865, and in 1886 was made a Mason in the Lodge of Hope and Perseverance, number 782 in Lahore. At that time, Lahore was in India. Today, it is in Pakistan. Kipling later famously said that he was initiated and entered apprentice Mason by a Hindu, passed to the Fellowcraft degree by a Muslim, and raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason by a Christian. He also noted that his lodge had a Jewish Indian tiler. Kipling's diverse experience would not have been possible without Burns' courage to apply the principles of Freemasonry to the society in which he lived. Allowing each man to be individually responsible for aligning his religious beliefs with Freemasonry was a major breakthrough, and it directly resulted from its spread to foreign countries. Masons gained a new understanding of the old Masonic expression that I might travel in foreign countries, work and receive Master Mason wages. As a centuries-old organization, it can sometimes take a while for Freemasonry to evolve in order to fully align with the implications of its principles, but with time, it always does so. Freemasonry is truly universal, but it sometimes takes courageous Masons to call its biases to attention. The following article is from the November-December 2018 California Freemason Magazine. It's written by John L. Cooper III, Past Grand Master, and is part of the Masonic Education Series, titled A Friend and Brother. The important role of Masonic friendships is enshrined in the initiation. The initiatic process of becoming a Freemason is one filled with symbols, some of which are easier to interpret than others. It is easy to see the symbolism in the working tools of a stonemason, as, for example, when we present the new entered apprentice with a stonemason's hammer, known as the common gavel, and a measuring stick, which we call the 24-inch gauge. We explain to the new mason that he is to use the hammer metaphorically, shaping his life as he would a block of stone, by breaking off and deleting any habits in his life that are hindering him from becoming a better person. The gauge reminds him that he has only 24 hours each day to accomplish all the things he may want to do. A more obscure symbol in the initiatic process requires a little more consideration to grasp its true meaning. In our present ritual, the senior deacon is the candidate's conductor through the degree. The lecture, which follows the degree, explains that his conductor was a true and trusty friend on whose fidelity he could with the utmost confidence rely. This statement refers to a much earlier tradition, a time before deacons were common officers of the lodge, 
when the candidate's conductor was his sponsor into Freemasonry. The entered apprentice degree teaches, in part, that in order to make progress in life, we must trust others to lead us when we cannot otherwise know the way forward. The person leading us is often a conductor or someone who serves as a guide. Another term for guide in Freemasonry is mentor. A Masonic mentor is someone who conducts us through the process of understanding the meaning and importance of Freemasonry, not only in the abstract, but for each of us personally. A mentor can be the man who signed our petition to the Lodge, and often should be. He can also be another friend and brother with whom the candidate is closely connected. He can, of course, be the senior deacon, and in many Lodges, the senior deacon takes the responsibility of mentoring candidates very seriously. In addition to conducting the candidate through the ritual itself, the senior deacon is often assigned the important task of asking the ritualistic questions required of the candidate before he can advance to the next degree. Both of these responsibilities are metaphorically related to the deeper symbolism that every Mason needs a friend and brother with whom he has a personal relationship and through whose friendship he will learn the very important Masonic understanding of friendship. Most Masonic degrees include someone who fulfills the role of conductor, and the symbolic meaning is the same. In the Royal Arch degree, this role is assigned to the principal sojourner, whose duties are defined as to bring the blind by a way that they know not, to lead them in paths that they have not known, to make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight, these things to do unto them and not forsake them. These words are but an expansion on the duties of the senior deacon, and, by extension, of the duties of a Masonic mentor. We are each of us often blind to the duties we owe to God, our country, our neighbor, or ourselves. A mentor, a friend, and brother, on whose faithfulness we can, with the utmost confidence rely, helps us to see those duties. He is expected to lead each one of us by a way that we know not before the doors of Freemasonry opened a new vista to us. He is expected to make darkness light before us and crooked things straight. And above all, he is never to forsake us. The role of a mentor who is a friend and brother is one of the most important responsibilities in Freemasonry. Mentors, and those whom they lead in Freemasonry, often develop a strong bond of friendship that lasts through many years. This is the secret that causes true friendship among persons that must else have remained at a perpetual distance, as the Constitutions of 1723 stated, being a friend and brother is the heart and soul of Freemasonry. The following article is from the March-April 2018 edition of California Freemason and is part of their Masonic Education series. It's titled, Of a Divine and Moral Nature, written by James Lincoln Warren. Understanding Masonic Sacred Geometry The term sacred geometry can be somewhat intimidating. How might geometry be sacred, one might wonder? And how does masonry fit in? The core concept of sacred geometry is that geometric order, shapes, curves, and constructs, precedes all physical existence. That geometry was invented by the great architect of the universe as a structure through which to order all of creation. Under this tradition, its symbols take on metaphysical and symbolic meanings. Geometry, or masonry, originally synonymous terms, is of a divine and moral nature, wrote William Preston, a seminal figure in the 18th century British Freemasonry. The contemplation of this science in a moral and comprehensive view fills the mind with rapture and proves the existence of a first cause. 
For some, all of geometry is sacred. At the other extreme, sacred geometry may be regarded as a system of fixed symbols and their relationships. As a coherent system, the origins of sacred geometry in Western civilization can be traced to the 6th century. BCE Philosophical School of Pythagoras The historical Pythagoras is essentially a cipher, as there are no contemporary accounts of his philosophy. His extensive legend, however, along with the writings of Plato, Aristotle, and his other followers, was transmitted through the centuries and had a direct influence on the development of speculative Freemasonry. Like Freemasonry, sacred geometry appeals to both the rational and creative mind. While geometric proof is relentlessly logical, the truths it conveys and patterns it reveals within the natural world urge its scholars to contemplate their place in God's cosmos. Many sacred geometric applications and symbols are familiar to Masons. First is the circumpoint, the point within a circle. In Masonry, the point represents an individual, and the circle, the limits of his behavior. In sacred geometry, this symbol is called the monad, which represented divinity and the unity of the universe to Pythagoras. The standalone circle, being without end, symbolizes divinity and heaven. It is created using a compass and defined by three points. These points can be interpreted as the three principal tenets of Freemasonry, brotherly love, relief, and truth, the last of which is often described as a divine attribute. As a divine symbol, these points can also be interpreted to correspond with St. Paul's theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. These virtues are said to originate in God, and they are evoked in the celestial first-degree description of the covering of a lodge as heaven itself. The circle's complement is the square. Bound by four finite sides, it represents the limits of the physical world and our moral existence. In masonry, the square represents the perfect dashler, a perfectly shaped square block without faults that is strong and steadfast, capable of supporting the blocks around it. Masons work to emulate this square, to be men of good character who are honest and reliable members of our communities. The square is reflected in the shape of a lodge room. The room's sides correspond to the four cardinal points of the compass, and thus to a map of the earth. It contains the four cardinal virtues adapted from Plato's Republic, which originate in man, temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. A slightly more complex symbol is the Pythagorean tetactrix, an equilateral triangle formed by ten dots, which has a prominent role in the Scottish Rite. This has many symbolic meanings, but an important one is perfection, or completeness, derived from the symbolic significance of the number ten. The 3-4-5 right triangle, which displays the 47th problem of Euclid, as explained in the third degree, teaches Masons to be general lovers of the arts and sciences. Operative Masons used a length of rope divided into 12 equal segments, 3 plus 4 plus 5, to make this triangle. It provided them with a swift and accurate method of creating a right triangle to be used as a template for a mason square. Sacred geometric symbolism, which can be very complex, is only touched on lightly in the three degrees. Its most prominent place is in the second degree, where the candidate is urged to study the liberal arts and sciences, especially of the noble science of geometry. As with all profound Masonic lessons, the instruction conveyed in the ritual is the beginning of wisdom to be discovered on this subject, not its culmination. There are profound depths ready to be plumbed. 
The study of sacred geometry is a means by which to view with reverence and admiration the glorious works of the creation, and to inspire a mason with the most exalted ideas of the perfections of his divine creator. Although one understanding of sacred geometry is that its forms are divine manifestations in the natural world, one must take time to scrutinize the natural world in order to deduce them and marvel at their presence. Preston wrote with lyrical awe on the beautiful geometry in nature, from the most elegant seashell and flower to the vastness of space, as he professed in words forever enshrined in masonry. By geometry, we may curiously trace nature through her various windings to her most concealed recesses. By it, we discover the power, wisdom, and goodness of the great artificer of the universe. A survey of nature and the observation of her beautiful proportions first determined man to imitate the divine plan and to study symmetry and order. This is the true objective of sacred geometry and its symbols, finding further light within masonry. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.